The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. I know that we've heard this and, you know, we shake our head every time we hear something that it's said. And it's a new year, a new you, where we're going to become better versions than what we were the year before, which in all honesty, I don't think that that's legit. Yeah. One year, my resolution was just to eat more junky food and work out less. And honestly, yeah. year end, I felt great. <laughs> that's uh, that's literally my life uh, yeah, each and every yeah. year. That's my New Year's goal. Less stress. Um, but as as we're in the midst of a January and uh, coming up on Monday uh, is known as a blue Monday yeah. and the most depressing day of the year. I feel like we need to do things in order to get ahead of that. Yeah, I agree. Mental health is so important. And especially this time of year. I mean, if you are in uh, the northern part of our lovely country, Canada, you don't see a lot of sunlight. And that also impacts our ability to be positive and to have like that good optimistic lookout when you are going to work and it's dark and you're coming home when it's dark. So everything yeah. seems to be impacting us these days in this season. So not to put too much pressure on our guest for this week, but we're going to talk uh, a lot of things, mental health and, and trauma. And I think trauma will be kind of one of those trigger words. Uh, Evan Owens, my friend, how are you? I am good. Happy to be here. Evan, we like to ask the skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. And that is, who are you and where did you come from? Where did I come from? I came from my mother. I was born. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, down here in the States. And um, kind of an interesting little story. I grew up in the the country first and then moved uh, and went to an inner city high school. Um, And so kind of grew up in the inner city area of Cincinnati and and, uh, went to school there and then moved down to Tennessee where I was doing music for a few years here in Nashville. And then, um, uh, yeah. And that's what brought me down here. And that's where I live now is outside of Nashville, Tennessee. So if you hear a little Southern accent, I apologize. I'm trying to hide it. I'm, I'm working on it. Hey, don't we love it. I mean, okay. Nashville sometimes feels like a second home for us. Okay. Nice. Yeah. 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 We've been here for about my wife and I've been here for about 23 years now. So, um, nice. it's home now. So you grow up in, in Ohio and you country, country boy to, uh, to an inner city kid, if you will. What was the trait? Was it, how old are you when you did the transition? Well, it was kind of interesting because the school that I ended up getting into is a school that's kind of a unique school. It's called Walnut Hills High School. And anybody who is from Cincinnati knows that it's a, it's kind of a unique place. It's a, a special school, but it's, um, it's in the roughest area called Evanston over the Ryan area in Cincinnati. And so I'll never forget like my first year, it's a seventh through 12th grade school. It's about 2,300 students. And I remember pulling up and my dad was going to drop me off for school on the first day. And I remember looking over and there was these dudes sitting on the hood of a car. And I remember thinking like, I wonder whose dads they are. They're pretty young. And then all of a sudden they grabbed their backpacks and went into school. And, uh, and I realized like, I am not, in the suburbs or in the country anymore. This is real now. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was like the only white dude that played on my sports teams pretty much everywhere. My nicknames were, you know, cream filling or, uh, <laughs> Twinkie or, oh, you know, no. some type of, of, of oh, white no. reference. So that's, that's how I grew up. So yeah, wow. that was it. How hard of a transition was that for you? When you're young, you don't really have anything to compare it to. I mean, you're 13, everything is the worst thing in your life, right? I mean, you know, everybody's True. got, so much drama. So for me, I would say the the hardest part for me was how difficult the academic rigor was. It was a, you had a test to get into the school and some other stuff. So it was, it was a public school. You didn't have to pay for it, but it was, you had to test. And and so academically it was super hard. Um, and then also just from my particular worldview, being a, a person of Christian faith, I was one of only maybe two or three people in the entire school who sort of subscribed to that worldview. And so that was also challenging. I kind of, you know, grew up in 
a minority setting, uh, really in the terms of I was a minority, which is a unique upbringing. And I'm really grateful for it because now I'm friends with people from every walk of life you can possibly imagine. And I don't feel weird being close to them. You know, it's kind of like I'm used to having people from every possible background around me. And I feel best when I'm in that setting. You had brought up the word faith. Was faith always a part of uh, your journey? Yeah, it was. I grew up in a home where um, that was valued and taught well. And I think for me, I sort of shifted, I think, from a place where I, I really had to fight to hold on to it for many years of my life because every professor, every teacher, every friend didn't subscribe to the same worldview I had. And so then having to transition over to um, you know, going to a Christian college was quite uh of a you know, a Southern Baptist white Christian in college at that predominantly wow. white. I mean, that was like, I walked onto campus the first day and I was like, where am I? And so that was actually almost a more intense culture shock than going to high school was, to be honest with you. It's interesting because I went to a private Christian school and um, since, you know, faith was taught in school, everyone around you is a Christian. It was more about conforming. And so mm. once you got released into the world, you're so used to conforming and yeah. now suddenly you haven't had your foundation challenged. So it sounds like you are though like prepared for that next phase and that you knew without a doubt your faith like you were able to have yeah. that challenged. Yeah, and my parents, you know, um lots of stories there, but they did one thing that they did do that I I think I hope to be able to do with my kids is they did a really good job of running towards difficult conversations. Hmm. And so there was always a, a debrief every day after school of what did you t- what were you taught? What did you learn? What, who challenged you? How were you challenged? How can we help you? How can we support you? And they were never afraid to, to, you know, there's a lot of conversations that I have with people now. And it's like, well, my parents, you know, never really talked to me about fill in the blank. And I think my parents always ran towards difficult conversations. And, uh, I think I learned something from that too, that now helps me in the work that I do today, you know, is I'm not afraid to have to talk, to talk about things that normally people don't want to talk about. And so I think I learned that from them growing up. So you're in the midst of this Christian college. Was there, what was your goal? Was the goal to be a pastor? Where did you want to, like, where did you see the next step? What kind of kept me out of trouble is I always had a knack for music. And so I started writing songs when I was like six and did music all through high school and um, uh, ended up getting a little scholarship to go to a school down here, Belmont University, and started off uh, doing performing and sing songwriting and things like that. And uh and so that was my goal was to make it in the music industry as is, you know, nobody else in Nashville really had that same idea. That was nope. unique yeah. to me. Yeah, so um, and so, but I got closer than a lot of people do and um, got to get a front row seat to it in a lot of ways. And um, was a songwriter for a couple of years, had a little publishing deal and then got fired and needed a job and uh, didn't want to write songs anymore and realized kind of how shallow and fragile that industry is. And I, and I, you know, I, I hate to say it this way, but, I was newly married hmm. and my wife, she was, uh, uh, at Vanderbilt still, um, or at Belmont finishing her degree. And she was about to get her first job at Vanderbilt, uh, at medical center. And it came pretty clear that I had to choose if I was going to provide and let her finish out her school and do that. Or if I was going to continue to, to chase the dream. And I loved her more than I loved the dream. And that was the first time I'd love something more than the dream, including maybe even the Lord. And hmm. so, um, I think for me, really starting to pursue her and her being the thing that I wanted to to be happy and to be, you know, that was a big shift for me in my life. And, and I don't miss it. I still do music for fun. I still play. I still write songs every now and then. But I don't I don't have any regrets about that 
it was it was good. It was and it and I think it served its purpose in my life and kept me away from a lot of really bad things. You could have been the next Toby Mac. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not. A, I'm not more. I'm not. A, I'm, I can't. I can't rap, and I. I don't look near as cool as he does. Um, I look older than he is, and he's 30 years older than me. You know, so 20 years old. So. It's true, hey. He just does not age. Yeah, he does not age. <laughs> It's amazing. So there you are. You're in Nashville. You have a, a lady in your life who you love. And um, yep. you had mentioned that you were pursuing her love and you talked about maybe more so than God's love. Was there a, a, a faith shift around that time where you're going through a new love, new career? How was that transition for you? Yeah, I think that there comes a place for everybody in their faith journey where they go from it being really their parents' faith that they believe to being their own faith yeah. that they own and that they say, this is something I made a choice for. And I think for me, um, you know, God always had his eye on us and, and on me. And so I ended up going from that, um, that music career into a startup company that was building websites. And at this time, I mean, this is like revolutionary. We're building websites. Uh, you know, this internet thing, we weren't even sure if it was going to make it. Right. Still don't know. <laughs> right. You know? Um, and so we began doing that and, um, I began working for this small startup company and lo and behold, the company grew and grew and grew. And I ended up becoming the CEO of that company and, and built it for, for many years. I was there for 11 years, almost 12. And, um, Towards the end, you know, in this whole time, I'm still walking in my faith and happily married and we've got a, a son on the way and life is good. And, and then all of a sudden in the company, we lost, um, four or five customers in a matter of about 60 days that represented like 60% of our overall profit for the year. And so I had just relocated people from another state, you know, they'd moved to here to, to work for us. And all of a sudden now I'm laying them off and I'm saying, you know, and you know, all these feelings and, and my reputation uh, in the community took a hit and people who I thought were my friends are now talking about my back saying, Oh, that company's about to go under and almost, I think secretly believe, um, you know, I think jealousy, sometimes we rejoice when people fail. And so I think that there were some people even rejoicing, maybe that, that was happening a series of just really, 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 really tough things happened in my life. And so I ended up, that's really the first time I ever had my first kind of suicidal ideation, found myself in deep anxiety, deep depression, feeling like I had uh, failed myself, failed, failed my wife, failed everyone else. And I think that's where really the metal of my faith was began to be tested. And um, I think for me, there was this thing where I, I had kind of clung to my roots of faith, which I'm so grateful for, but then simultaneously had started to um, put my faith in my marriage, put my faith in my career, put my faith in my health, put my faith in my money, put my faith in all these other things. And all of a sudden, when when those things started to be pulled out from underneath me, I realized that there was a there was a gap. There was a lacking. There was a lack of empowerment and a lack of trust that I really did not trust my father to provide for me. I didn't really trust not my physical father, but my heavenly father. And so for me, um, that was really the next awakening of my faith happened during that time period. And I see now how that, you know, the worst days actually was a new beginning for me mm. in my life in many ways. The the year of this happening is about when? 2010, 2011, okay, so, something like that. Maybe, maybe 12. I'd have to look at the exact time is yeah. really when things started to, things started to turn in like 12 and by 13, things were pretty tough. Yeah. And so 13, 14 are kind of the worst years of my life, but turned out to be some of the best. 
because it's funny and more funny ironic because we talk about depression we talk about mental health and i mean that's that's less than 10 years ago but that's actually something we really didn't talk about a ton it's only in the last few years that i feel like the talk of mental health has more you know been um front of mind if you will how do you then deal with something like that as somebody who is wanting to move forward but not necessarily you know you don't know where to turn yeah, well, I think for me, there were three lies about our identity. And if we look at mental health symptoms, a lot of times our focus as humans is always to focus, including my own at this time. I wanted to get rid of the symptoms, whatever it took, get rid of these symptoms. A lot of times what we we are unable to do at the moment is to say, okay, but what's what's feeding these symptoms? What's the root causes of some of these symptoms? And sometimes it is you know, a physiological response to some external input sometimes. But in my life, what I started to find is, well, there were lies that I believed about my identity. I had believed that my best days were behind me. I had believed that I was what other people thought of me. I believed that I was what I could do or what I could do for others. And so these three lies permeated my mean. And suddenly when those three things were bad, all of a sudden, instead of just feeling guilt and conviction, I started feeling shame that I was bad. Right. Not just that I had done some bad things and failed other people, but now I was a failure. And so when you start translating that, so all of a sudden that was feeding my fear or feeding my anxiety, feeding my depression, feeding my suicidal thoughts, feeding all these things. And so for me, I had to start digging down into some of these root issues. And I think that for so many others that, that maybe like myself, I, I think in that moment, you're not really able to process all that in its entirety because it's just so much. Um, but like for me, I mean, I can think of other examples where I felt, um, you know, embarrassed and regret. I felt, um, abandoned and neglected and rejected by people that I needed in my corner during that time that I looked around and people who had been like my allies for so long, all of a sudden, like they were gone. Yeah. And that pulled up roots from traumas I had dealt with in the music industry, where when I lost my publishing deal, I looked around and all my friends who wanted to co-write with me, suddenly, guess what? They didn't return my calls anymore because I wasn't signed anymore. And they only wanted to write with signed author, you know? And so it, it reminded me of those roots. It reminded me of what it was like to feel alone and neglected and rejected by my peers in high school and how they would make the jokes about me being the only white player on the team. And I would laugh along, but secretly it just made me feel more isolated. And so all those kinds of of things. It just, you could see how all this time. And, and what I like to say in my life, at least is when Satan found a trail and it worked and he was able to get to his destination of my heart, he, he made it his single goal that over the long haul to turn that thing into a five lane highway. And mm -hmm. I can look back now and see how there was just a widening of the trail for a decade or more. You know what I mean? Just slowly widening it. And, um, you know, and it was too much for me at the time. There was too much traffic coming towards me by the time that was a five lane highway. I had too much stuff coming in. And so I had to do a hard reset. How does one do a, a hard reset? Well, I think for one, I had to start uh, being radically transparent. Uh, my wife at the time, and, and I'll tell a, kind of a cool story in a little bit, but um, my wife at the time, she started calling out the lies that I was believing really directly. Yeah. Um, I had to start practicing radical transparency. I had to start making dramatic life changes. I had to change the status quo. I couldn't keep doing the same things anymore. Um, and so for me, I had to, to leave my career. Ultimately, I had to change my group of friends. We had to move. We had to, I mean, there was a lot of things that we did, um, wow. that by a lot of people's standards would seem crazy, but the only way I knew to, like, I couldn't build, um, like I couldn't build higher on the foundation that was there 
because the foundation was faulty. So I had to move and build a new foundation and find that foundation again. Um, and I had to get rid of some of those things that wanted to be like, but you can still take this with you for the new foundation. Like, no, you can't like, that's got to go too. Um, and so that was what it looked like for me. I don't know what it looks like for others, but that's what it looked like for me. I appreciate that you have already started that conversation about mental health being a symptom of other things. Only as of late, that's been part of the conversation. It's like, let's treat your mental health. But it's right. one of those only illnesses where it's just all the symptoms of layers and layers of complexity or trauma. Right. You know, it's interesting because if you were to go to like my parents' generation and say the word trauma, for example, let's just use the word trauma. Like if yeah. I was to say to them, like, tell me something traumatic that happened to you. No. Like my dad would maybe talk about something in Vietnam. Yeah. And that's probably about it. But yet today, if you went to a 20 something and said, tell me something traumatic, like they would be able to say something from the last six months yes. and then something from the six months before that. And I don't think that's necessarily because this generation's a bunch of pansies and needs to suck it up, which I think could be some listeners might feel like that's the truth. And maybe that is the truth. I don't know. I don't have enough years yet. I'm getting closer though. I don't have enough years yet to feel <laughs> quite like that. But I think that, um, we look at how the vernacular has changed. Like the language has changed so much that we used to say, um, we were worried or stressed or afraid. And now we say we have anxiety. We used to mm. say that we were really sad or devastated. And now we say we have depression. We used to say that we had been through a really, really difficult time. And now we say like a really traumatic time. And so what we've done is we've changed language from things that used to be part of the human experience. And now we've given them clinical words that are diagnosed illnesses that need to mm. be fixed. And so rather than seeing difficult times as something to be embraced and to something to grow and learn from, we now see it as something to be avoided, treated and medicated. And so when that starts to shift, when our language shifts, our behavior follows. And so the same with me is I began to say bad things about myself. I began then to behave in ways that followed what I was already saying and believing. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's a very interesting uh, season, I guess, or time in our culture where you could say, oh, that separation. And it could have been like moving to a new school. It was traumatic. Maybe it was, but maybe it was just a different thing to experience that you had to shift and I think that's so good. And I think, again, that doesn't mean we downplay because there are those things that we probably mislabel as trauma. And on the flip side, sure. there's probably things that truly are traumatic that we also it's it's kind of funny. We're we're quick to label things that probably aren't that bad as really bad. And the yeah. things that actually are bad, we probably relabel as something not that bad. Yeah. You know, so it's like, oh, my dad wasn't abusive. He just drank a lot yeah. or like, you know, fill in the blank. Like it's just these yeah. other this this uh, supplemental language that makes it a little less horrific. Um, and I think in, in, in our life, even like at the time, I don't think that I would have said that what I was going through was traumatic and I'm still not sure I would say that it was that the, the actual loss of my job, et cetera, was traumatic. I would say that the, the betrayal by some of my close friends that felt traumatic. Yeah, that did feel traumatic. I think it definitely has taken me a long time to rebuild trust, you know, with people. And even now still, I, Anytime I feel like somebody lets me down, I'm quick to like, I don't trust that people, you know, I, I, that's my reflex. So I work on that. That's something I constantly work on. But, um, but yeah, I think it starts with just sort of a shifting of, of identifying like, okay, whether this is traumatic or not, what is the outcome of this experience going to be? Um, and I think that begins to change the conversation a little bit. 
And we constantly run into people who are dealing with different things, different forms of trauma and that like we've, we've addressed today. At totally. what point did you and your wife then start doing a uh, reboot recovery? Well, that's the crazy part of the story. So she went to go work for the department of defense, initially working with the active duty military population here in the States. And she was one of the team brought in to build the first of its kind traumatic brain injury clinic on a military base, which is a, her career um, is quite le- legendary and quite sort of uh, like intimidating uh, to most folks. So, I mean, like, so for example, you know, she was doing these return to duty examinations where a person who had been injured would have to go through simulated combat experiences to see how they responded. So she's out there and there's like people running out of buildings in Arabic and there's Humvees flipping over and there's fake explosions and they're being dropped off in the middle of the woods. And she's doing all this with them. Meanwhile, I'm like building websites for a living. Right. So, I mean, you think about like the difference, like I come home and she's like, how was your day? And I was like, Oh, the website was late launching. It was super stressful. And she's like, Oh, we had a guy who became suicidal in the lobby and had to talk him down for four hours. I mean, you know, it was like, my life doesn't really matter. It's kind of, you know, like, like not really, but I mean, it was that, was sort of a joking feeling. And so um, the hilarious part about the story that I think God and his timing. So we, we began inviting people into our home in 2011. And so while my, we're having these conversations about faith and trauma. And so while my personal life is entering a season of chaos and trauma and depression and anxiety, all these other things, Mm -hmm. I'm now surrounding myself and absorbing more content about this subject than I've ever thought I would possibly absorb. But I had this bug, this like infection to learn everything I could about it. And I think also the military appealed to me because guess where I was? I was back being a strange civilian in a room full of people in uniform. And so I was back to being the minority in the room. I was back to being the person that felt out of place. And that in feeling out of place, I felt more in place. Um, And so... Yeah. So we started doing that. And so simultaneously, the way I like to describe it is there was like a baby bird complex going on where I was like the mama bird and I was chewing up all this information and then sharing it during these weekly meetings in our home. And I was just like chewing it up and spitting it back out kind of thing. Um, and, uh, for whatever reason it was working for them. And yet I continued to like, I had these weeknights that were awesome, but my work days were so terrible that it became like this, like highs and lows extreme. Um, and, that wasn't very sustainable for very long. And I only did it for about two years at that pace um, until, you know, we, we got to where we were leading three or four reboot groups uh, a week. And that's a lot. And uh, that's meeting every night. So that's like every weeknight. And it got to the point of severe burnout and compassion fatigue and everything else. And so um, that's when everything kind of came to a culmination all at the same time. And that would have been like 2013, 2014. So. That's a lot to process and to go through for, for one individual. And yet yeah. here you are. You yep. are still a part of this ministry and you guys are still helping so many people. How did you, what were some of the things that you did to heal so that you could continue your ministry? It's kind of amazing because I think for me, like the thing about baby birding it, chewing up that. and spitting out is that you're malnourished as the bird mm-hmm. because you're not absorbing anything. And I think that for me, that started started to happen. And so I think the first thing that I started to do was sort of understand the gift of limitations that I am a limited creature and a limited being and embracing those as God given gifts, as opposed to challenges that need to be overcome Mm. um, that need to be pushed through. So that was the first thing. The second thing is, is that I really embraced 
a shifting in my personality that had already been happening for a long time. It had been happening where I had been shifting towards being more of an introverted person. You know, I think for years I was this sort of extrovert had to be the center of attention. And I think that, um, I had noticed it like all the way back in like 2007, 2008 that I, I found myself wanting more time with just me or just me and my wife or just me and my kids and, um, not wanting to be, the center of the room, just not even wanting to really wanted to even really be in the room at all. And, um, I think embracing that was a huge gift. So like I used to go to all these events and handshake and meet all these people to grow the business. And I haven't been to an event like that in probably seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no desire to go to them. Um, and being okay with that and not feeling like, Oh, I'm letting down, you know, I'm, I'm a failure and I need to, you know, so that's another thing. Um, I began to really embrace worship as a, as a necessary part of, um, my prayer life and recognizing that, um, other people had words that could sometimes really help me, um, and to be able to use those instead of focusing on the volume and the number of friends that I had focusing on the depth of the friendships that I had. And so I took three or four friendships that had been around a long time. Instead of trying to find new friends, I invested much more heavily in the friends that had been there all along. And that has been a game changer for me. And so with your ministry, where do you guys go from here? What does it look like now from homes to what's been going on? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So what Reboot Recovery does is we offer peer-led trauma healing courses. We have programs for veterans, first responders, and anyone else. Um, and we've got about 350 locations around the world right now, a bunch of different countries, different languages, things like that. And they're all faith-based courses, but they're all led by everyday people. And so our vision is that we get really big by being really tiny in lots of different places. And so we want to have these leaders and say, hey, you've lived through some stuff. You've learned from some things. Now help lead other people through it. And we'll give you the tools, the systems, the training, the know-how, all that curriculum, all that stuff to be able to do that in your local community, whether that's your church, your sports team, whatever it is. For us, um, that continues to be the sole focus. And so whether it's the book that we have written or like we just went on this big tour with Brandon Lake, um, a music artist, like no matter what it is, it's all about identifying and saying, hey, you either can give help or you can get help. And we are looking for both people today. So whether that's a person who's going to say, you know what, I want to use some of my story. And maybe you say, well, I haven't even been through something that traumatic Right. Okay. So then God's given you a life of stability. Can you share that stability with somebody else who doesn't have a life of stability, who's had a life of chaos and earthquake after earthquake, after tornado, after fire, after, you know, hurricane. So we equip those people, we call them up and that's our focus. And it's going to remain our focus. Uh, we only do one thing, which is peer led trauma healing courses. And we're not going to change that. And so our vision is to, uh, by 2025 to have 50,000 people have gone through our courses right now. We're at about 18,000. So we got a long ways to go. Um, but we are constantly looking and saying, Hey, if you, if you need help, we're here for you. And, uh, and our courses are, are truly life changing. And, um, they changed my life as I was going through them in real time. So I can speak to that. And of course you guys are doing all this. And, and as you had mentioned as well, uh, healing what's hidden, a practical guide to overcoming trauma. You guys wrote a book and of course, because you guys aren't doing enough already. <laughs> what has the response been? For people, I mean, yes, going through the course, but then now being able to pick up your book. Yeah, well, my mom thinks it's great. I think she's the only one that's read it so far. No, I'm kidding. Um, it's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it is Toby Mac's favorite book. Perfect. He just doesn't know it yet because he hasn't yeah. read it. 
Yeah. But um, when he does someday, he's going to love it. I just know he is. <laughs> um, no, the, the book, it's funny. I'll just say we had been talked to about writing a book at some point and I never wanted to do it just because, I mean, bluntly, like, there's been so many times when I've been feeling like I'm drowning or when I've seen a friend of mine who's drowning and like a Christian person or somebody runs up and hands him a book called learn how to swim and yes. walks away. Yes. And it's like, nothing is less helpful than that sometimes. So for me, for I was sure. like, I don't want to be that guy. Who's like, here's a book called learn how to swim. Good luck, not drowning and walk away. Yeah. I always wanted to be the person that's like diving in with my clothes on being like, I'm in here with you. You're not going to drown. We got it. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I always kind of like stiff arm this book idea. And then I had this, crazy sort of thought of like when I was in like junior high school, how these dudes would come up to you all the time on the streets and hand you like these mixtapes. Those of you who remember it's a, it's a cassette yes. tape. Those of you who are listening oh, don't know is they would hand you a mixtape and they'd be like, yo, check this out. And if you like it, go, you can go to the show. It's going to be Tuesday night at XYZ club. Mm-hmm. And th- they were giving out like the greatest hits of whatever their mixtapes were from them and their buddies they'd put together. And, put- and so I started thinking like, well, we've got all these different curriculums. What if really the book could be like a mixtape that we were giving out to people that we could use as a tool to say, Hey, here's some of our greatest hits from some of our other courses. Let this be an on-ramp for you. Let this be something that whether you're going through a situation or you know somebody who is that can give you some training, you know, listen to this, absorb this information. And now you'll feel ready to either dive deeper into what you need to do, or you'll be ready to help that other person who needs to go through something. And so when I shifted my perspective on what the goal of it was, and I started saying like, I don't have to become like this Christian influencer, which just really like nauseates me that concept. Like I don't have to like, cause in my brain, it was like, well, if you write a book, you kind of start to sell out that way. Like that's who you start to become. Mm-hmm. And and now I think once I shifted it to be like, no, 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 this is me like out in the streets, handing out my mixtape to people saying, Hey, if you need help, and that's, that's what it's become. And that's how we, that's what led to the Brandon Lake tour is that night we were able to give out hundreds of books every night to people who opted in and just said, Hey, we want a book. And we would say like, here's a mixtape, go listen to it. I hope it blesses mm-hmm. you. And then afterwards connect with us. And we've had a thousand plus people register for courses, um, already since that tour ended. And, um, the books it's, it's sold, you know, books are going to sell what they're going to sell. I don't really care. We've given away probably about as many books as we've sold. Um, and that's awesome. And I'm super proud of that. And that's not something I'm ashamed of. And I think the publisher's happy. So that's all that matters. Um, and so, yeah. And I think, so for me, that's how the book came about healing what's hidden, a practical guide to overcoming trauma. And, um, it's a book that's broken down into 60 micro little sections so you can read it once, but reference it often. And that's how it's, so it's super manageable, super practical. It's quite funny. Actually, a book on trauma that has a lot of humor in it would not be something you would expect, but, um, and it's not autobiographical. It's, we don't really tell our story in it at all. Hardly. Uh, I think there's like one section that tells our stories and everything else, um, is about other people and what we've learned from them. We were talking about the the generation. The you know, if we're in our generation, I don't, what are we called, Holly? Are we Gen? We're, we're Xennials. Xennials, we're a, whatever a micro, we are. We're a and micro then there's like the cohort. boomers. What's the new? Like, what would our kids be considered? Uh, they're the what? The Gen A's? The Gen? I don't even know. Anyways, the whole point of my question though is that is there a way that we could teach our kids? Uh, about trauma or teach our kids because it was something that we didn't get talked to. The next generation got it a little more. Should we as parents be doing something different? There is. Yeah. First run towards the difficult conversation. Be the, you know, we work with a lot of young people and let me tell you that young people are desperate for an adult to stand up in the room and be an adult for once. 
Mm-hmm. We have way too many adults acting like children and the teenagers are basically having to be the adults in the room and they're doing a bad job at it. So the first thing is be the adult, have the run towards the difficult conversation, whether that's in your youth group and individual, whether that's with your own kids. If you see it, run towards it. They will embrace the fact that somebody had the courage to have that difficult, brave conversation with them. They will welcome it, right? Number two is to avoid, teach our kids to avoid the four default responses to trauma, which we talk about in the book. In one of the chapters, we talk about how the four default responses are deny, cry, numb, and run. These are the four default responses that if we just kind of remain on autopilot through life, when we encounter difficult seasons, we're going to deny that it's having this deep impact on us. We're going to cry, meaning we're going to have these emotional outbursts and overreactions. We're going to numb. We're going to get into something that probably is a distraction or a substitute. And then we're going to run, which is when that when that numbing agent stops working, we're going to run to a new one and then a new one and a new one. And we'll spend our whole lives running from thing to thing, which is the least productive way to spend your, your time. And so, um, you know, even with my kids, like all the time, and you don't say those words to them necessarily, but I'll ask them a question like, what impact do you feel like this had on you? How did that end? How did that change you? Or how did that impact you? Like that question right there is helping them not deny that it did have an impact on them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I'll say things like, um, you know, how did that make you feel? Or did you feel this when that happened? And then the last thing I'll say is teaching our kids to use specificity of words when it comes to their emotion. A lot of us as human beings, we suck at clearly articulating what the emotion is we're feeling. We say something like, I just feel sad. Yeah. Well, that's not really what you feel. What you really feel is embarrassed or neglected or misunderstood or something like that. And so, you know, it's difficult to sort of be a parent and really speak to that unique way that that child was wounded. If they, if they are hunting and pecking for the word and we just guess and say, okay, sad, we don't feel sad when they didn't really feel sad. They felt alone or they felt. And so if we can get to the specificity of the words, then we can get to the specificity of the solution. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's those iceberg emotions, the I'm, totally right. I'm angry. Well, why are you angry? Right. I'm sad. What's behind the thing? I'm happy. Yep. You know, you you hit the nail on the head. And I've heard so many people talk about how, especially as like North Americans, we're just really bad at things like our emotions, yeah. grieving. Totally. We're just we're just not very in tune with how we are truly feeling. And so, those questions are so important, even for us to ask ourselves. I feel That's mad. Right. Why am I Why am I yelling at the car in front of me while I'm driving? Not that I would ever <laughs> right. do that. <clears throat> but right. <laughs> like, right. why do I feel like this? I feel inconvenienced. Uh, totally. So it's a, such a great question to ask everyone in our lives because we need to do better. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. So this is the Why Me Project podcast. As you reflect throughout your life and clearly you've been through a lot, were there any moments that stand out to you as a why me moment? I'll say good and bad why me moments, right? I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot of times when, especially in the type of work we do, where you literally see the work is sometimes the difference between life and death for someone, literally with with suicide, especially. It's difficult for me when I feel like we're working as hard as we humanly can. We're doing it all right. And we feel like God is blessing other people who do less effective work in audiences that's not life and death. And they're getting all the money. They're getting all the prestige. They're getting the big media opportunity. They're getting the big corporate partnership. They're getting the big exposure thing, you know, whatever it is that always goes to, well, God, why me? Why not me? Why, you know, why is it, why is it me that you keep not blessing in this way? Like that's, and I think that complaining, that spoiled brat child comes out in me. Um, You know, it's like he gave me this, 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 and this, but I wanted that too. I wanted the golden goose for Christmas kind of thing. And so I think that's one thing. And then the positive 
you know, there's very few stories where God takes two civilian people and says, I'm going to make you missionaries to the military community and you're going to go and live right outside of a military base. And God's going to open doors for you where you're going to, you know, literally end up reaching and speaking to thousands and thousands and thousands of combat veterans and you never deployed. Um, most people, it's a, it's a non-starter. You wouldn't even think that you could possibly have those conversations, but for whatever reason, God said, you know, Evan and Jenny, this is something I have for you and is the most humbling, unstrategic plan in the history of like, you're going to go to the base and you're just going to walk up to people and start having conversations. And that's still what we do pretty much just at a bigger scale. And so, yeah, I would say, why did he choose us? I have no idea. And that's a mm-hmm. question. That's probably the first question I'll ask the Lord when I get to heaven. It's like, why, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's it. That's the why me question, I suppose. See, that wasn't too tough. <laughs> yeah. You says you. Yeah. But I do think one quick thing too, I'll just say about the why me questions. Trauma always catalyzes a conversation about faith and it usually starts with why them or why me or why now? Mm-hmm. And all of these are really spiritual questions, right? I mean, those are all really spiritual questions. And what I try to help trauma survivors reframe the why questions, I found that the why questions a lot of times don't have answers that will know this side of heaven. So what I try to do is help people reframe the why questions into how questions. Hmm. So instead of why did this happen to say like, how can I make this something that benefits others and myself? Or how could I heal from this? Or what do I need to do? So like choosing a different first word to their question instead of the why question, um, which I know goes against the start with why phenomenon. But I found when it comes to human emotions, starting with why is not always that short of a distance. It's it's sometimes you don't know why with why did it happen? Um, now, why did I feel this way? Those are better. But if if you're trying to get to the origin of things, you don't always know. Um, why did this why did this girl get raped? Why did this guy die in a car accident? Why did this person, you know, whatever it is, like we don't know those things. And so it's not super productive for them to spend a lot of energy on that. Let's focus on the how and the what and the when. That's kind of what we try to do. It's interesting that you bring that up, though, because when we first started this over five years ago, it started with the why. And over the years, talking to a number of people, it has moved to how can we move from the the why me's to the, to the how's, the what's, and the when's. So you bringing it up kind of just is what we're learning over this amount of time as well. Totally. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the man could have been a Toby Mac. He almost started <laughs> Google, but now he helps out a ton of people at Reboot Recovery on the Insta at Evan and Jenny Owens as well. Uh, Evan, we appreciate you taking some time and sharing your heart. I could have never been Toby Mac and I couldn't, I didn't start Google, but those are the most funny. I'm going to tell and introducing myself that way to everyone. <laughs> Brother, this has been good. This is good. Thank you all so much. What a blessing. You know, despite it being Blue Monday coming up, uh, it's still one of the interesting things that I was reading about, Holly. Like Suicide is the second leading cause of death between those uh, ages 18 to 39. And Mm. I just think that we need to continue to have conversations about mental health and helping people who are in need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel we came from the generation that was tough it out. You'll be fine. Oh, walk, walk it, it off. Walk it off. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're learning so much more about emotions. And I think that is, is really the important part is when you can understand what you're feeling. And sometimes it takes time. If you can realize that sometimes you'll have multiple feelings. Um, mm. sometimes I'll, I'll say, how are you feeling to my daughter's like excited and scared? And then yeah. we'll try to allocate it. 
you know, oh, I'm 90% excited, but 10% scared. So I'm going to lean into the excitement a little bit more. Yeah. Having those conversations makes those emotions feel not so overwhelmed. So you're not hitting that highway, as Evan had mentioned, of everything coming at you. And then, you know, the, the devil using those large highways to get to our mental health and to our hearts. So many good analogies. Mm-hmm. I know. I was taking notes. So many good clips. Um, yeah. You can check those out on our YouTube channel. We'll That's good, try yeah. to pull something and put that there for you. And, of course, we're on all the socials. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned YouTube, in which you can like and subscribe. There's also do the reviewing thing, because the more reviews makes our numbers jump up or something. Yeah, exactly. So your favorite podcast platform, look for Wimey Project. Yeah. Even if you're listening via the radio, just download the episodes and uh, help us as we continue to spread the word with our guests' incredible stories. 